0: Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at LawPods. LawPods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm excited to welcome John Stromeyer to the podcast. John is a tax and estate planning attorney in Houston, Texas. After working for several law firms, John started his own firm about five years ago, where he helps clients through the maze of estate planning, tax, and probate law to help them leave no unfinished business, which is a trademark tagline, so maybe we can talk about that, too. John is active in the tax and estate planning community, in organizations like the American College of Trust and Estates Council, and the International Tax Committee of the Tax Section of the Texas State Bar and the ABA. He's also a regular speaker on these issues to both individuals and lawyers alike. But more than just a lawyer, John's a thought leader for lawyers who want to run effective and client-centered law practices. His wonderful podcast, Five Star Counsel, includes more than 100 episodes, all that get at one key question. What Would a Law Firm Built by the Founders of Disney, The Four Seasons, Ritz-Carlton, and Zappos Look Like? In his podcast, he draws on interviews and his own expertise in the law and his time for almost three years, as, or for more than three years, as a customer service professional as the night manager at The Four Seasons in Austin, Texas before law school. He's a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, where he holds a degree in zoology and the University of Texas at Austin School of Law, where he received his JD, go Longhorns. He also holds an LLM in tax from NYU, go Violets. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks for being here. <laughs> nice
1: for getting the uh, the Violets in there.
0: Yeah, exactly. I try to always get the uh, the mascots in to the extent I can. But look, I want to start by just hearing a little bit about your path to the law. So I saw that you majored in zoology. That's you're my first zoology major on the podcast. And then you worked in high end hospitality after law school. Like, when did you decide to become a lawyer and and what were you thinking when you made that decision?
1: So it goes back growing up. My dad was a doctor. My brother would become a doctor while I was in high school. I thought that was the path for me. I loved science. And I mean, even in high school, I was taking all the advanced biology classes that they would let me got into college. I was majoring in biochemistry thinking I was going to go be a doctor, just like dad and my brother. Mm -hmm. Then I took the beginning of my junior year, physical chemistry, which most lawyers have never heard of what physical chemistry is. It is basically physics and chemistry and advanced calculus. And that is where I just fell apart. Like the, Hmm. the, I just could not make it work. I failed that class. And that was where I had to say, look, this is a class for med school. This is my sign. I need to get out. And I kind of thrashed around for a year Added a bonus year to college before figuring out, oh, mock trial was fun. I like reading things and coming up with arguments and finding a path through this. Let's do this. I changed out of biochemistry, got my zoology degree because it allowed me to still finish on Hmm. time-ish, five years. But I didn't have to retake a bunch of classes. Sure. I really still enjoyed the science, and it would help me stand out. So the zoology just means it's a biology degree. And I took no botany classes. Hmm. I was one of the last few people to actually graduate with that degree, whatever that's worth. Uh, I knew I wanted to go to law school, but after five years of college, I just was kind of tired of being in school. So I looked for anything that would allow me to stay in Austin. At the time, that meant I was going to go work for the Four Seasons Hotel. It really was just kind of fell into it. They were, Hmm. you know, in in the spring of 2002 when I was graduating. There weren't a whole lot of jobs anywhere in Austin, but that one sounded neat. Uh, Here, let's go do something. I worked at the front desk for about nine months before I was given the opportunity to work as the night manager. So big promotion. I was in charge of the hotel from 11 p.m. until 9 a.m. Tuesday night, through Saturday night. Everything ended with me. I was the one making decisions. And I was the one they're responsible for carrying on the brand of the Four Seasons along with the 13 or so other people who were there to keep that hotel running. And in a lot of ways, it was great. I had all this freedom and responsibility at the same time. How do we want to take care of people? And I just learned, you know, it's it wasn't about any particular thing. It's how do we take care of the guests who are staying? But the entire time I knew, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go to law school. This is just a temporary delay before I head to law school. And I did. Ended up getting into UT for law school. Was there for three years thinking, oh, I'll just do, you know, I've got this background in science, intellectual property. I'll go be a patent attorney. That makes right. sense. Right. And then I took intellectual property, it it just didn't interest me. Like there was <laughs> nothing in there that said, "Oh, th- this is what I need to do with my life." It was interesting questions, but not so interesting I want to spend my life doing it. Sure. Uh, stumbled into tax and estate planning. My dad, even though he was a doctor, had gone part-time, got halfway through night law school in Houston. Oh wow! And it always been pushing me like, "Don't be a doctor, go be a lawyer." And probably grass is greener for him most of the way. And he's like, "Oh no, tax and estate planning. This is important because you don't, you know, nobody's ever really mad. All people do is, is uh, pay you. You don't have to go sue anybody." Which I mean, look, he's outsider lens. He's got that, but it's been a pretty rewarding practice area because oh. people don't come in frustrated as much. They they may have some problems, but we're here to help solve them. I'm not suing anybody. You know, I've I've got litigators that I'm happy to bring in when it makes sense, but I don't do any litigation. And I don't want to do any litigation. It's purely transactional, tax, estate planning, and probate work.
0: That's fantastic. You know, one of the things I I was listening to you talk about your science background and one of the things I've noticed among the science students that come to my legal writing class. So when they come into their first year, the science students tend to be a little apprehensive about having to write But once they realize that legal writing sort of has a structure and an organization and a logic to it, in some ways they can take to how lawyers communicate and how lawyers make arguments faster than their sort of traditional humanities colleagues. Did you find that your science background helped you sort of in those early years of law school and your legal career? It was probably two things. So
1: Yeah, the science, surprisingly, a science degree involved way more writing than most people would imagine. I know I can still remember writing about a 50-page paper towards the end of my uh, undergrad on who knows what. I just can't even remember anymore. But I remember it was like 40 or 50 pages. The other thing was in the hotel, I had a lot of writing to do there. (laughs) And it was concise writing of, generally, they were called glitch reports. If anything went wrong, we needed a record of what happened why did we do you know, why did the mistake happen what was the corrective action taken do we need to do anything else especially for me on the overnights if something goes wrong i need to be able to communicate to somebody who's not there the next day this is what went wrong this is what we need to do so learning to be kind of concise get to the point starting up front with the bottom line you know traditional legal memo you're doing the the question and answer quickly up front because right. if somebody doesn't read any of the rest of it, at least they know what the answers are right. up front. And just kind of going with, well, that's the point. You want to make it easy for people to get the pieces out of it. Sure, there's going to be details and more in it later, but if you know yes or no, obviously maybe's always an answer. But even how much of a maybe is this? Right. Right. You know, what do we do?
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think it's so true that people forget that that you're paying lawyers to give you answers. They can couch language, right? And they can say, it's likely going to happen and how likely is it going to happen? But especially when you're making predictions for clients, they don't pay you to say, well, it's a 50-50, right? Like, Who knows? They they pay you to make a prediction. It's something I teach in my class. And I think that idea of problem solving at the hotel probably applied pretty well to sort of what you're doing now and problem solving as a lawyer. Right.
1: And, you know, again, to put it, the way I normally think of it, clients are coming to us to move the needle on some sort of problem for them. Hmm. You know, they don't want just liberal application of billable hours to their situation. You know, to be bestowed with our brilliance, they need to know what do I do now, and you have to be able to tell them that. At the hotel, sure, it's kind of clear what they're showing up for. They want to be taken care of. They wanted some combination of entertainment, pampering, and fun. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just two different business models. Sure. And so that was something that was interesting to see because coming from being in the hotel and then going to a law firm where the lawyers I've worked for always want to think, well, look, we're charging a lot. We're going to take care of clients. We're really good at service. They're picking up the wrong pieces from their experiences at the Four Seasons or Disney or, you know, even their high-end one-off restaurant that they love.
0: Say more about that. Like, what are what what are some of the things that they're picking off that are wrong, and what are the things that they could pick off better?
1: So it's focusing first on clients come to you for a result. They're not coming to you because you have fancy offices. Those are nice, but let's be honest: the fancy offices are for the lawyers, not for the clients. Huh. Uh, the clients just pay for them. The clients aren't coming to you for some sort of drink menu. They aren't coming to you because you've you've got fabulous offices or you know three hundred bond weight paper. They don't care about that. As an estate planner, the first three firms I worked at, when clients were coming in to sign documents, the wills would always get you know, some sort of special high-end multiple cotton type paper. And then everything else, you know, the powers of attorney, which arguably are going to be way more damaging. People can go out and do a lot of damage with those. Those are just printed on regular copy paper. Hmm. And oh my gosh, we would never print double-sided. Just the luxury of the of this the formality of it, we print one-sided. It just, come on. The clients don't care about that. They do care for me and my practice in estate planning. When they die, when they are incapacitated, will the people they need to be in charge be able to not have too much of a mess to clean up? Hmm. That's what our clients really care about. And it's getting at, like, focus on what they're there for. What is that needle they're moving or they want moved? Not the we need to have these overwhelming offices with glass and chrome and this and that. Clients, clients surely will be wowed by that, but that's not what they want to pay for. They want to pay for a result. Hmm. And you know, why? At you as a lawyer, look around. Does that help you? Not really. Does it help? Does it help your client? Not really. Focus on how you can move the needle for your clients.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting. I love that idea that. It's really focusing on who the client is or, you know, when you're writing who the audience for something is and what you learned, it sounds like from, from your hotel career was that audience matters and clients matter, but Absolutely. it's not necessarily what those client like clients of the four seasons may need something different than clients who are coming to your estate planning practice. And I think that's a really important and sort of some, maybe not intuitive way of thinking about client service.
1: Right. And it's, it's easy. Lots of lawyers get so distracted by we need to give them gifts or, I mean, I've even been, I remember one time at a conference, there was this lovely older family law attorney and she was just so proud that, well, of course, you know, whenever a client says that they have that drink, we make sure we have that for them every time. Like I understand it's their favorite drink and it's showing some of that personalization but that's not going to actually matter. You know, if you saw you were looking for a lawyer and you went on Google Maps, you started pulling up reviews. If the review said, well, it cost three times as much and it took four times as long, but she had diet moxie for me every time I walked in. <laughs> Even if she got that five star review, you'd think this person was a little questionable hmm. and. It doesn't mean don't take care of people, but you've got to kind of balance. Is it reasonable to go and, you know, ship in Diet Moxie from wherever it comes in in the Northeast to your office in California? Probably not. Like clients, well, I've been having clients come into my office for years now. They're not overwhelmed by my office. It's it's fine. It's not big. It's not nothing flashy. We don't have a drink menu or a custom coffee machine. There's a coffee shop downstairs. They're welcome to get their coffee there, but they're coming in for an hour or so. Most of them are just fine with water. And it doesn't mean that we couldn't kind of upgrade things, but then we're taking our effort and resources away from taking care of them and spending it on something that may be a gift that they don't care about. How many of my clients actually care about us having locally sourced, roasted, you know, wonderful coffees? Right, I like that, but I don't necessarily need that for my clients.
0: Right. And it sounds like what your client, what you are giving your clients, right, is exactly what they want, which is a solution to a problem. And I guess I just want to sort of dig a little bit deeper for someone who's unfamiliar with sort of estate planning and tax as a practice, because I think it's not something that every law student certainly is familiar with. Candidly, I'm not sure there are a lot of, I think there are plenty of lawyers who don't actually know what estate and tax planning lawyers do. Talk to me a little bit about what in your practice you are providing, what problems are you solving and how are you communicating those solutions?
1: Yeah, it's fun because we're thinking way into the future. We are trying to predict as far down the line as we can, what's gonna happen when you die? You know, right now I will tell you, and I tell this to my clients as they come in, look, I know you're gonna tell me your plan is simple, you don't need anything fancy and all you want, if you die, everything goes to your spouse and if both of you die, roughly equal shares for the kids. And everybody gets that. It's like, yep, that's me. That's all we need to do. And they're like, well, I've scheduled us for a two-hour meeting. Why is it going to take us two hours if I just told you exactly what you're planning? If you think about it, it's like trying to build a house. And that house is the four-year-old's crayon drawing of the house. Hmm. Sure, it's a nice place to start but it doesn't do the soil work. It doesn't. It hasn't built a real foundation. We don't know where the studs go or any of that. We've got to dig in and kind of pull apart the pieces for the client. And just to say, all right, you've got accounts here, you've got accounts there, you've got these beneficiary designations on your IRAs. These IRAs have their one set of tax consequences. How do we make sure on a first death, we're keeping things as simple as possible. We're not kind of throwing away any tax benefits. And while a lot of the tools look the same, almost all of my clients end up having a will, maybe a revocable management trust, powers of attorney, things like that, how we implement it is going to be unique for all of them. And sure, like the custom drafting may not be more than a paragraph or two for any particular client, but making sure that it works for them and they know how it works. That's the kind of magic. That's the, the real thinking. And one of the things that I do, you know, having worked in this practice long enough and heard it from enough other attorneys, oh, you're an estate planner. This is simple. All you do is you take a form and you put my name in there. Sure. I'm sure you would love to say that to anybody else. You know, your divorce petition, all you're doing, you're taking our names and you're putting them in there. (laughs) It's just a form. The real brain work is figuring out how do you make these pieces work for this family? And what I've done, you know, I bill on a fixed fee basis. And I don't get paid when clients sign. I've kind of broken it out into four pieces. There's the initial meeting that we charge for. That's about 10% of what we generally earn. When clients sign, we get another 10 or so percent. When we draft documents, when we send them drafts, we get paid generally between $500 and $1,500 for drafting. And that is, you know, somewhere from five to 10%. It is -hmm. the smallest chunk we get because I don't want them overvaluing that. Clients, if you don't tell them any different, and this is true anywhere for any of us, if you don't have any idea where the work is, you're going to believe, oh, okay, well, you know, Skittles cost 99 cents a bag. That's probably about what they're worth. So roughly similarly sized candy is worth about that much. But if, if you kind of put yourself out, and I'm intentionally saying, we know the drafting portion, it may be one of the most intensive parts in terms of, Hourly work. Mm-hmm. But I don't want them valuing that that high. Like I want them to know that of the 25 or so percent or the 75% that's left, that's going with our initial recommendation. Us digging into their circumstances and pulling out and saying, look, when you die, you're gonna have this sort of mess. And we need to address it with this, 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 and this. You need to do this. We need to talk to your CPA and your financial advisor and your banker and your insurance and dah, 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 dah. So that when you die, we are doing the least work possible for probate. That's the bit, the major brain work. It's hmm. knowing, you know, it's not knowing which tools, it's not knowing how to swing the hammer. It's knowing how to pick up the right hammer and to swing it exactly. Uh, the going back to the, you've probably used this in class before, heard it at least the metaphor of, you know, the plumber comes over and charges $100 for turning the one screw and then when somebody says, you know, like break this out, all right, $1 for turning the screw, $99 for, for knowing which one to turn. Exactly. That, that's what it is. And as lawyers, we too often get just bogged down in, it's a problem with hourly billing. We only make money when we're working on a thing. Yeah. Right. But there are plenty of firms that bill fixed fees. And I think that, that is really important that you bill fixed fees because you do this so much, you know exactly what's going to be involved. Sure, And you know how to kind of allocate where things go. Like, look, I know there are going to be clients out of every 10. One of them is just going to blow out whatever budget I had for them Mm -hmm. in terms of the hours it takes. But it's really only one out of 10. It's not 10 out of 10. I've kind of tweaked the pricing, know what to do. And that just takes a level of risk away from the client. Sure, it puts it back on me. But it makes it easier for the client to know, oh, we're not going to get a takey-tack bill for 0.6 or 0.25 of an hour. If if they call me, I'm just going to tell them. And I look at it as, do I want to write an engagement letter for a quick question? I don't. Do I want to send them a bill and kind of monetize every aspect of that? No. It, it's much better to say, look, we've got to get this work done. How do we get it done? And how do we get it done easily for everybody
0: involved? Hmm. And if somebody's listening to this interview and they're thinking this problem solving, this way of working with clients, this way of billing, this way of thinking sounds interesting to me. What, what should somebody be looking in the mirror and thinking or seeing about themselves that, that they'll more likely than not, you think be a good estate planning and tax lawyer, or maybe someone who would just find value in that career path.
1: Yeah. It's, something where, you know, I get mildly combative. I like to think of myself as a paper tiger. Like I'm not going to file anything. (laughs) I tell my clients, like it's in all of my engagement letters. Like we are not litigators. If anything contentious gets filed, you have to hire somebody else. Otherwise you have already agreed to us getting out and abandoning you because I just don't know how to do that work and I don't want to learn and that's okay. So why would you do this? It's still, you know, ultimately we're a, a profession that's about helping people, you know, guiding them through some maze. Like whatever we've got to do, we're going to guide you through so you can get whatever result you're looking for. The people, you know, tax is its own special thing and lawyers hate it because there are numbers. So you've got to be <laughs> you've got to be ready to deal with numbers as a tax attorney. I spend a good chunk of my day in Excel. I have I love Excel because I can do all sorts of things with it to start projecting out this is what your estate tax liability is going to be for the next decade based on what we know about the law and think about your assets and what they're going to do. It's going to be hard to be a tax attorney if you're unwilling to get in Excel and crunch numbers. You Mm -hmm. have to know how to work things. Gotta be able to work with CPAs and things like that. On the estate planning side, we're kind of a bifurcated practice. There is a push, you know, for for folks who need high-end Estate planning, and you, know, you can argue about where that starts, but when you need to start thinking about taxes, it's somewhere between two million in assets and five million in assets. Above that, it's a you've got to know what the taxes look like. You've got to be able to deal with it, even if you're not going to be preparing any tax returns. That is one aspect of the practice where that part's not really going away. Hmm. I'm definitely in that area. I'm not worried about legal zoom. I'm not worried about Robo yeah, lawyers. I was gonna ask. Yeah, I'm. I'm not worried about you know. Just there, there are lots of problems and that are exist on the other end, that other camel hump, where you're just doing simple basic planning. A lot of people come in and say, "Look, we've got a house and a 401k, and maybe an IRA and maybe a 529." They don't need that work, or, or they don't need anything mm-hmm. complicated. Lawyers who are focused there are competing on price. They are competing with Zooms and DIY, it's tough. We get clients who look like that, you know, fit in that. We have an offering for them that is intentionally price competitive. Like we're, we're doing more for them than they would get from LegalZoom. And the idea is, look, we've landed these clients. They've picked up the phone and called us. We might as well take care of them. I'm not gonna send them away, but I don't need to be involved with them. I've got my associate who will benefit from dealing with these clients directly. You know, she gets the experience kind of mm-hmm. low risk planning opportunities where she's going to meet with them. She's going to do all the work. She can run any questions by me. She needs, but other than me, just double checking her work, I'm way too much for that. Like, if I, I'm I'm not a good use right. of time for them and that's okay. Like I, I want my associate to get the benefit of leading and having to ask questions and be in that meeting with them for two hours to draw out where is your plan going to go wrong? Like, what are the things What corners can we see around for these clients that they don't see?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like, especially as somebody, you know, I have young kids and people often don't start thinking about setting up an estate plan until they have some big moment. It could be a wedding, children, a medical emergency. Like, what's your pitch to people that they need to have a plan as soon as possible?
1: Right. It's the idea of just... Close your eyes. Everything that is just right at your fingertips. Jonah, right now, you know exactly where your bank accounts are. You know, your wife knows where your bank accounts are. If something Mm -hmm. happens to both. Yeah, I hope so. There's the risk. If something (laughs) happened to both of you because you're on date night and then I'm just going to make up, you know, you're you want your kids to go to your brother. If something happens to both of you, is your brother going to know where you bank is, your brother going to know where to find Hmm. your life insurance. Just that treasure hunt that is probate. You can do so much right now just by jotting down here's where everything is, here are rough amounts, spend five minutes, and we'll save everybody just piles of hair that they pulled out of their head because it's so awful. You know, it's the Mm -hmm. difference between having the sort of map that's laminated and says, you know, here be dragons versus we have clues. And some stories about where the treasure is. But we don't really know where to even start. Hmm. And so that's where a lot of the work is just like you've got this awful mess that you sometimes get stuck with. And it's not great because people, you know, sometimes they did absolutely nothing. We're just trying to piece things together. Other times, they've done some work. But maybe they DIYed some of it. which case, like I was looking at a will this morning. It was all handwritten, but it was a joint will for husband and wife. And there are just yeah like, oh, my gosh, thank you for trying it. It is only going to be one tick easier for you having done this Mm -hmm. instead of five ticks easier.
0: Yeah, that's the challenge. I think people, you know, I've been in this situation myself. It's like one more thing on your someday list and it doesn't feel imminent. And so you don't do it. But it can help a lot and needing an expert. You know, one of the questions I was going to ask you was the one you started answering, which is, are you ever worried that like technology is going to take over this business? And the answer is maybe it supports, maybe it helps some, but knowing what screw to turn is still going to be a big deal.
1: Right. And, you know, the the clients you deal with on the higher end, at this point, they still want somebody there to do something with them. Mm. And, you know, is, do we use, practice or do we use technology in the practice? Yes, a lot. You know, we use Zapier, Calendly, Basecamp, After Pattern for document drafting. But again, it's not getting paid for drafting documents. It's getting paid for being the trusted guide who can say, don't step on that. You know, that is a landmine. Yeah. You need to avoid that.
0: Yeah, that makes a and, lot of and, sense.
1: And and so there's always going to be need for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's what's really, really important. But look, Hold that thought, John. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, I'm going to talk to John about his other area of expertise, which we started hinting at, but I want to dive a little bit deeper on client services for lawyers. Sure. This episode is also brought to you by Legal Board. Let's be honest how many times have you needed to type a section symbol or a paragraph symbol, type the word id, or write out words like plaintiff and defendant? Well, the Legal Board makes that a breeze with 35 lawyer specific keys and functions that make legal typing so much easier. The legal board was invented by my friend and podcast guest from episode 38, Brian Potts. As a busy big law partner, Brian created the keyboard he always wanted, and now you can get one too. There are three different models. There's a wired keyboard, a wireless keyboard, and the legal pad, which is a small keyboard expander for law students, traveling lawyers, and Mac users. Frankly, these are the computer keyboards I wish I had when I was a practicing litigator. And legal board is not only helping support how I lawyer, thanks for that, but they also have offered a discount code for our listeners. So just go to legalkeyboards.com and type in LegalBoard10 at checkout to save 10% on your entire order. Thanks to LegalBoard for sponsoring the show. Welcome back. Before the break, we talked a little bit about your practice, but let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the things you've learned in your podcast, The Five Star Council, and sort of what you do when you teach other lawyers how to have stronger client relationships. One of the things we already talked about before the break was the idea that what Disney and the Four Seasons and the high-end restaurant do is different perhaps than what a lawyer should do. What are some of the other things you've learned as you've sort of done a really deep dive in thinking about client service in the 21st century?
1: I mean, it's the sort of thing that when I look back on it, Four Seasons doesn't have any special monopoly on being a high-end hotel. You know, there are Hmm. plenty of competitors with it. But the other thing is there are plenty of other alternate options in the market. You know, there's Best Western, Days In. There is nothing wrong with those. You know, even though I am a Four Seasons person for life, I love them. If I can ever stay there, I try and do that. But it doesn't mean that I don't also look at my options and say sometimes I don't need the highest Hmm. of high-end. Sometimes. It's okay to stay in an Airbnb for the night because we're just here and we're not going to make use of it. And that's okay. But kind of drawing back to the beginning, one of the things that I always want my law firm clients to think about is really some business basics. Like you need to know where you're going and why this matters. You know, just the foundational things of knowing what are you doing? What is your product? You know, how can you describe your Hmm. mission to both your employees? And your clients, you should be using basically the same verbiage for us. We guide our clients through the maze of estate planning, tax, and probate to help them leave no unfinished business. I can say that to a future client. I can say that to a future employee. This is our job. You may need a few definitions about what that means, but our job is to guide them through this. It's going to be complicated, but that's okay. Like here, we can pull you through on this thing too, you know, knowing what your values are and it seems like sappy stuff, but the problem is most law firms don't define any core values. Like how do we know you have acted in the spirit of what we're doing? Are you doing that? And when you don't have those concrete values of what it is, the problem is you default, you default to, you know, work hard and make a bunch of money. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but it allows a lot of nasty behaviors to seek through. And this is where the the bad behaviors of just let's work too much and zero work-life balance, just all of that stuff gets to be bad. Like it just corrupts who you are because you're chasing the wrong thing. You're not chasing results. You're chasing dollars. <clears throat> and it doesn't mean that I don't want to make more money. But I also like the life that I have where you know, my wife and I are able to go to fabulous conferences and do all sorts of fun things. And I'm able to say to my staff as well, you can work from anywhere. Occasionally, we do have to be in the office by the nature of our business, sure. but it's not everybody all the time. And it allows me to get better people. Like one of my associate lives about 45 minutes from the office. She comes in two or three days a week, but the rest of the week, we're working remotely. and It works pretty well. Hmm. Uh, of course, she, I would like her to move closer just so she doesn't have to waste that time. <laughs> right. But for right now, that's what's useful for her and her
0: life. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that values point, because I think it's easy for someone to say, well, I know why I practice, right? I practice Mm -hmm. because, fill in the blank. It's another for an individual lawyer, if you're part of a bigger firm, or if you're part of a smaller firm, or you're running a firm, to actually have firm values. What are the kind of exercises or questions you're asking yourself, or would you recommend to somebody who's hearing this and thinking, huh, I don't know what my firm's values are. Like, what are the kinds of questions that you would recommend asking in that process? Because I think that's really interesting and a really thoughtful approach to the practice of law.
1: Right. It's it's something where the values come down, you know, on a day-to-day basis. How do you want somebody to act? And we don't have, like, it's intentionally non-quantifiable, but it is a qualitative thing. So for my firm, values are compassionate, adaptable, knowledgeable, knowledgeable, easy, and smile. Hmm spells out kicks. So <laughs> they kind of, that's the point. Like I deal with death and dying. I need to make this as easy as possible. Like I was even talking to another attorney earlier this morning. It's like, we don't wear suits because all of our competitors wear suits. And it just puts this formality on top of things that makes it one step more difficult for people to think about. It's like, look, I, I want you comfortable because we're going to talk about hmm. some hard things. You know, what happens when you're dead? What happens when you're in a coma and somebody needs to make a decision to withdraw life support? This is already tough enough. If you're at least, we can have our meetings by Zoom so you can be at home. You don't have to be in the office. But again, what we're coming up with, with these values, I want you thinking about the guidelines for everybody who works there. No matter what, I want you to be compassionate. I want you to be adaptable to our clients as they stand in front of you. You should be knowledgeable about what we're doing. Make it easy for everybody involved, not just our client, not just me, the owner, but you like we need to push back. You know, I want pushback of if I'm asking for too much, we need to think how this makes sense. And then finally smiling. And I wish it were the first value just to make sure everybody Hmm. starts with a smile. But at the same time, we want you thinking about it. Just have fun with this. Make people feel comfortable and go in knowing like we're not supposed to be formalized automatons. We're not just, you know, like legal robots beeping and booping on things. Mm. We are people taking care of people in some pretty trying times. So keep that humanity. And it's just something where you can look back and say, hey, you talked to this person. And when you were there, like I could hear you smiling. I could hear you being compassionate or you were a little more robotic than I needed you. Mm. It's a lot easier to kind of train people around that. Now, this is different than a standard where this is a quantifiable metric like When you write, when you turn in something for me to review, there better be zero spelling errors. You know, there should be zero grammatical mistakes. That's something where we can say, yes or no, you did this, or one, two, three, four, five, you did this. It's there to help guide people when you're not there.
0: Hmm. Yeah, well, it sounds like that's a a part and parcel of your practice is uh, guiding people when you're not there, right? I mean- It's a good word. Yeah, right. I mean, the other question I have is sort of, If you've taken any lessons from your thinking about this sort of like how to approach clients and how to approach business in terms of the sales side of law, right? I mean, I don't know. I'd actually be curious sort of how long a representation with you typically lasts. Like, is it a one-off? And then you hear from them again, maybe never or in 20 or 30 years. But that plus fixed fees kind of requires you to keep bringing in new clients to an extent, what are some of the learnings in sort of how to how to reach people and how to explain to them your value proposition as opposed to others in the space?
1: Right. So marketing, then sales, then you're a client. Kind of the easy way to think about it. The marketing side, our job is to say, this is what we do. This is how we can help you move these particular needles. So when I write and speak and record videos and put stuff on YouTube, it should be, we're helping you avoid messes when you die. We're not here to help you get it force. We're not here to help you get out of jail or do, you know, an acquisition of a company. Those are all valuable things, but somebody else needs to do that. So just making it easy for them to know, like, do they pick up the phone and call me? The sales side. So this is, you know, once somebody has raised their hand, we're kind of bringing them in, kind of setting up the engagement. Again, make it easy for, for them once they have raised their hand to come in mm-hmm. and be a client. So we're getting the information. For estate planning, one of the things you'll hear people complain about a lot is you'll get this questionnaire where it asks you to list everything
0: about yourself. Yes, I've been there. Yes.
1: And it's awful. And so my process is set up. If you call our firm you and you say you want to do estate planning, you get transferred to an intake person who will just walk you through everything. They'll pull out all the information because if you're still alive, we don't need to the penny values. We don't really need account numbers immediately. We can get that later. But just knowing I have an account at Fidelity and one at Charles Schwab, and I think I've got some life insurance with Mass Mutual, whoever, we can drill in and get better details later. But you have most of what you need just floating around in your head Hmm. right now. If we write it down and we make it easy for you because we're typing and all you're doing is dictating. It just makes it easy for them to get started. And it's like, oh, here's your list of assets. Here's what we saw about you. That just helps people get the process started. And then, you know, we'll have engagement letters. Typically for us, I will, even though they talk to somebody in intake, clients are going to want to talk to me first for a few minutes just to make sure I'm a real person. and I'll be involved. That's totally fine. But kind of dialing in on what the process looks like. You know, I've tried a few times well, can we just jump to that initial consultation? Hmm. My clients want to talk to me first, hmm. and that's fine. I know there are other estate planners where they their clients don't need to talk to the the attorney until they actually get started and they've paid their money. That works for them. That's okay. Both are fine. Hmm.
0: Yeah. What's really interesting to me in that answer is it almost goes counter to what I think a lot of people think of with sort of marketing in the digital age, which is something if you go to John's website, you'll see like it is very slick. It is very clear the copywriting is solid. There's video. I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive, but I think people just assume they want to just like start typing into a form and do it asynchronously synchronously, and not talk to a person and your model is get them on the phone and get them to a person because it actually makes their life in that moment easier. That's a pretty powerful approach, I think.
1: Yeah. And thank you for appreciating the website. Like it's, <laughs> it is something, I mean, it it was not done in a day. It has taken you know nearly five years to get the website to where it is. And it works because we've tried different things of what works here and there. And it doesn't mean we're not trying to figure out other ways to make it better. But the point is, like, we want you to see this is how we're going to behave, right? Like, if you go to the if you go to the attorney and staff bios, you will see nobody is wearing. There's only one person in a tie because we're still editing his headshot. And then at the bottom, you see I have listed my three dogs as employees. Hmm. The reason I've done that is it's a great way to run off bad clients for me. They may be great clients for somebody else, hmm. but I've just seen like our web traffic. That staff page is one of the most viewed pages.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: And we've got our dogs at the bottom. I'm, you know, once a month or so, we'll get a new client who says, you know, we weren't sure it was you or we knew you were our guy when we saw you had our your dogs there. And I'm sure, like, I, I have zero doubt. There are people who go to my website, see that I have dogs listed and say, this guy is not serious enough, despite the you know list of accomplishments and all the other things that you know, this guy isn't serious enough and that's fine. Like I don't need to work with those clients who don't think I'm going to be serious enough or not take them seriously. Totally fine. You know, our pricing also has some indicators for people, like people, you know, my initial consultation fee for some clients is more than you would pay for your entire plan at another firm. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm fine with that. You know, we had somebody reach out the other day, like, oh my gosh, like, why are you charging so much? Well, you know, fellow of the College of American Trust and Estate Counsel, double board certified. We're experts, right? Mm-hmm. I am happy to clearly shout that. I'm going to charge you more because we do this more often. It is not a bonus practice. I'm not the family lawyer or the criminal defense lawyer or the insurance defense PI litigator, whoever it is who lists probate and estate planning as a, oh, well, we get some of this and we're, you know, anybody can do this area of the law. Sure, anybody, I could do that act, that area as well. But I'm not going to dabble in it. I want to be really good at the stuff we're doing. and you know, the stuff that I don't do, I don't want to touch.
0: Hmm. yeah, it's really important, especially in today's today's day and age. I, I once heard a story about how you, someone knew that the big firms were going to start specializing more when Skadden stopped doing wills. I don't know if that's a true oh. <laughs> story, but it it sort of tells you tells you the answer. Well, look, we're getting close to the end of our time, so I want to ask two more questions. The first has two parts, which is a former litigator move. One is, one is sort of, the first question is forward-looking. The second question is backward-looking. The forward-looking question is this, what do you see coming down the pike? So for a law student who's listening or a junior lawyer, what's the biggest thing that's going to change or impact either the trusted estate side of your work or the client-centered lawyer side of your work? Like, what are the changes that if I interview you if I interviewed you 10 years from now you wouldn't be surprised to see.
1: Riff on this just a little bit to say, I think the biggest thing is that law students need to be focusing on their technical skills. It is important that they know how to put the words in order, but being able to assemble the pieces, knowing how, you know, word works, knowing how like how it actually works because I'm sure you've seen on Twitter people railing on Microsoft Word and blah, blah, blah. Like that technology is not going anywhere. It is the standard. You should know how to do it because it's only going to get better and faster to put the words in order. You know, look, look, chat GPT, who knows? We're probably going to have chat GPT uh, briefs soon enough. But it's the combination of you plus technology Mm -hmm. that will be really valuable. It's not just the bespoke legal services that people want. Like you should be leaning on technology. You should like speed up. The parts of the practice that don't benefit from a human, you know, swinging the hammer, have the machine do it. But at the same time, you want the human in there to overlook what's going on. I'd much rather one of my programs track has somebody sign their engagement letter than just have, you know, a bulleted list, something somewhere else that we're, oh yeah, the Smiths haven't signed it. Let's remember to do this. It's how can we learn to automate that? Because the practice is going to go that way. You're going to have to be able to compete in how you're delivering it.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense and it's it, it there's a challenge there, right? And the hard part for those of us in legal education full-time like myself is what we teach now may be different than what they're going to experience. Like the the speed at which technology is changing is so fast that it's hard to integrate that into a curriculum that's already chock-full of getting the words in the right order to use your phrase. And like what can we do to help solve that problem? Yeah, I-
1: is this part two of that question? No, oh.
0: this is still question one. Don't worry. I'm still I still got my closer for you, John. Don't worry.
1: Okay. Uh I mean it's what can you do for for law students? Honestly, it's the taking the clinics, taking the actual practical classes, yes. not just, you know, sit there and listen to lectures. Go learn how to do things. One of the things that I wish I had done when I was in law school, the IRS has a program volunteer income tax assistance, it's VITA program, but you do low income tax return prep. They train you how to do tax returns and you go and, you know, for people who qualify as low income, you do their tax returns. I don't want to do that work. It doesn't make any sense. I have CPAs. I send that work to, but having done that work as my pro bono stuff for a few years, it's super valuable. And the, really the thing for young lawyers and law students to think about is getting experience in low risk environments like learning how to do this oh you know you know even hmm. if it is just take numbers and put them in a 1040 learning how to interact with the human who's handing you that like if you've never had to be responsible for a client and they're crying to you about their husband just died they can't make the mortgage they need the like just having to deal with that like those human skills are very important for your part as a you know not just the attorney but the counselor at law it's like the counselor
0: part is really important and we just kind of breeze past it. Hmm. Wow. Well, you sort of went right into my other question, which was going to be the way I always end the podcast, which is a piece of advice or something yeah. you wish you knew earlier. And what, what you just said, which is really powerful, is this idea of doing things in low risk environments, right? I had this experience also, and I, I've talked to a lot of people on the podcast the first time you get to do something as a lawyer is a big deal, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't know how absolutely. to do it and clients want the answer. They want the answer right and they don't want to pay for you to figure out what the answer is. Those low-risk environments are so important and the more opportunities, the more you can increase the denominator of those, I think you're absolutely right, John, is just huge for developing as a lawyer and doing it in a way that can help the community all, all the better. Any other advice you'd leave uh, my listeners with?
1: Just to kind of expand on that, getting that pro bono stuff, getting the pro bono experience, your firms should want you to do it. But going out and meeting people with your set of problems, do the pro mm-hmm. bono that's related to you. Don't, if you're an M&A attorney, don't take on a pro bono divorce. That like you're, It's going to be frustrating, and hard for you. But there are plenty of opportunities for you to give back in those low risk environments where you're going to get the reps with the client. You're not really taking on liability because it's like they're small things. You already know way more than you think you do. And so you're just making it easy for these people who just need some help. And kind of to that, figuring out where do you want to go? What sort of problems do you want to help people with? There are plenty of opportunities. And so going out and finding the people in that practice area and just start calling them and just say, look, I'm a law student. I'm a first year. I don't know enough people. I'm not looking for a job. Just talk to them. Go to coffee with those people because hmm. most lawyers will happily tell you exactly what they do. And, you know, even if you are looking for a job, the job offers will come later. Mm-hmm. You just build that network early.
0: Hmm. Fantastic. Well, look, it's been great, great chatting with you, John. Um, I recommend to anybody who hasn't yet listened to John's podcast or checked out his blog or his YouTube channel, he's he's everywhere. So go find him. Where, <laughs> where, where's the best place for people to find what you do, John?
1: The best place to start is episode 66 of the Five Star Council podcast. I'll make sure you get a link to that, but it just really goes through a lot of my ideas on client service for lawyers. Once you've got that one, then you can go get any of the other 100 or so episodes, but start there because it does frame up what I'm thinking about.
0: Fantastic. Well, look, it's been great chatting and thanks for sort of sharing your story and sharing what you do. And I uh, hope we can uh, keep in touch.
1: Definitely. Jonah, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, for sure. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.